Our Old Testament reading is taken today from the second book of Chronicles, and we're reading in chapter 7, Second Chronicles chapter 7. It's part of the great story of the building and the dedication of the temple, and the Old Testament Israelites would look back on that time as a time of great uh, sense of God's presence among them. And this is the chronicler's account of all that happened. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Then Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, And all the Israelites were standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings. Because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat portions. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days. And all Israel with him, a vast assembly people from Libo Hamat to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held an assembly, for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people, Israel. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. Thank you so much. We're reading just some verses from 1 Timothy chapter 3, really my text for today, right at the very end of that chapter. We'll read from verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 3. At verse 14, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus with some important help and instructions for the work of the church there. And this is what he says at verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. 
He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Amen. Well, this is a significant day uh, for this congregation. At long last, after many years of debate and discussion, you're beginning the process of renovating this meeting house. Can I say a word of congratulations to Robin on having led the congregation thus far and all the folks in session and committee who have worked hard to get to this stage with all this work before you. For some of us, it's long overdue. Highly appropriate that improvements and renovations be made to this building. All of us are living in homes which have been changed and improved and renovated over the years. And it just makes sense that the place where we meet to worship God should also be renewed and improved. But as I said already, for some there will be a minor sadness in moving out of these familiar surroundings today. Some of you will remember sitting in these pews as a child. Some of you will remember many Sundays when you sat in these pews alongside dear loved ones who are no longer with us. And some will remember significant moments in certain places around this building where God spoke to you clearly and where your life was changed. Sitting in these old, uncomfortable pews, God's presence was real. And you experienced God's power at work in your heart as you sang his praise and as you listened to his word read and preached. I have precious memories personally of this building and of God's presence as I had the opportunity to lead worship from this pulpit. So grateful to Andrew and the choir and the musicians for their contribution to the service today. And we remember with great delight the evenings of worship we've had in this building led by the choir and the musicians. We remember those who led us, Charlie and Diane and Paul. And when this building echoed with the singing and the worship of God's people in glad and wholesome praise. I remember the privilege of standing in this pulpit here with my late colleague, Dr. Craig, and the immense thrill in my own heart of being associated with the strong tradition of evangelical ministry that has been maintained in this place over so many years. Today, we have so much to be thankful for. This old house has served us well, and we pause for a moment to give thanks to God for all the times when we have known his blessing and his presence among us as we have worshipped here together. But seeing that group of youngsters at the front today, we're reminded that the kingdom of God doesn't stand still, it moves forward. And we look to the future with faith and hope and joy in our hearts. Our our Presbyterian forefathers were very clear about this. Uh, This Uh, The church is not a building. That's why they were so insistent that whenever we refer uh, to this building uh, as the church, we've got it wrong. They would have said it's the meeting house. We give thanks for this space and for the location. But primarily, as the youngsters understand, 
the church is about the people who meet here. And that's the theme I want to think about for just a minute this morning. A renovated building will enhance the mission of the church. But more important than a renovated building is a renewed and a renovated people. What does God want this church to look like? We all have our own ideas about what we want the building to look like. But what should we look like as the people of God here in this place? And our text in 1 Timothy 3 gives us three descriptive phrases or expressions that refer to the church, each one illustrating a different aspect of what it means to be the people of God. In verse 15, Paul describes the church as God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That description of the church is very important because the church once held a prominent position in our community and society, but it no longer receives much respect. The views and opinions of the church are largely ignored. In fact, in many places, what the church believes and what the church preaches on key issues are thought to be repressive and negative and even dangerous. And we're facing huge challenges as we seek to be the faithful people of God in an increasingly secular and anti-Christian world. So in renewing and renovating this meeting house, this congregation is making a clear statement. We are committed to the cause of Christ here in this community. Committed to Christian worship, to Christian fellowship, and to witness in this community. And by renewing and rebuilding the meeting house, we know that will not be enough because personally and corporately, we all need renewal and rebuilding. I have a vested interest, as you would imagine, in the growth and development of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Uh, Because we are preparing ministers for that church, we watch carefully to see what kind of ministers does our church need uh, for the days to come. And we watch with interest the churches that are growing and developing and those that are declining. And I have a particular interest in watching what's happening in all the first churches whether it's First Balamina or First Coleraine or First Lurgan or First Armagh or First Larne, because first churches face particular challenges. Part of the challenge is that their long history, their established traditions, means that sometimes they find it hard to adjust to the surrounding community. And the big danger is that if they don't have a clear and a biblical view of what they're meant to be as the Church of Jesus Christ, then first churches may be vulnerable. And we don't want that to happen. The tradition is long here. The witness is long here. We don't want to lose that. So if First Portadown is going to maintain a witness for the years to come, you need to be clear about what God wants you to be. And here's the picture in First Timothy 3.15. Since the church is God's household... We ought to be a healthy and a loving family. Notice what Paul says here. These Christians in Ephesus where Timothy uh, is ministering, he says they must know how to conduct themselves in God's household. The church, says Paul, is like a household. 
And being part of the church is being a member of that household or being a member of that family. And in that context, there are some behaviours that are appropriate. And there are other patterns of behaviour which are inappropriate, just as it is in every family. We need to know how to conduct ourselves in God's family and in God's household. And as you read through this letter of Paul to Timothy, the language of family, the language of household is very prominent. Already in verse 4, Paul has said, the elders must manage their own households well. Because, he says, if they can't manage their family, how could they possibly manage the family of God? In chapter 5, Paul urges Timothy to treat other Christians in Ephesus as members of the family. Don't rebuke an older man harshly but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. And he goes on in that chapter to talk about the church taking responsibility for caring for the widows in those cases where widows had no people to support them. So the whole picture of the church in 1 Timothy is that it's meant to operate and work like a family. And just as in any family, the church will need leadership. Just as fathers in the home take responsibility for setting the tone and for providing loving leadership, so in the church, the elders have this fatherly role of leadership and oversight, caring for the family, providing for its needs, making sure that it's protected and cared for, showing love and concern for all its members. And the church can be, as a family, you know, in so many other ways. You know what they say, you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. And just as there may be people in our families or family circles who annoy us or who embarrass us or who get on our nerves, so it's the case in the church. Someone has said in every church there are three awkward people, and when one of them dies, there's still three. Uh, And the question for the church, as for any family, is not do we like one another. The question is, will we love one another? And that's not a choice. That's not an option the Savior gives us. It's a divine mandate that we love one another as Christ has loved us. And this is the badge of our Christian discipleship before a watching world. I think it was Robert Frost who said, home is a place where when you go there, they have to take you in. And that's what the church family is meant to be. You're not valued by how much you contribute. You're valued by how much your Heavenly Father loves you. An underachieving child isn't kicked out of the family because of their underachievement. In fact, the child who faces challenges and difficulties and who struggles is often the one who attracts the most love and the most attention. And that's why, as a healthy, loving church, which operates as a family, we can attract a lot of unhealthy people, people who feel marginalized, people who feel out of place, people who feel socially awkward and needy. And the church is one of the few places where those people can be taken in and find the acceptance and the love that reflects the grace and compassion of Christ. If this church is going to survive for generations to come, then renovating the building is only one step, one small step. You'll need to live like a family, loving each other, caring for each other, welcoming the stranger and the lonely, 
because many people long to belong. They long to find a home. They long to find a place where they're valued and appreciated. And the church is meant to be that kind of home and family. As you make this church a loving, caring family, you will grow and expand. Keep the doors wide open to people who are outside its fellowship. Welcome people in by loving them. Show them what a loving Christian family looks like. Because you know what? You're God's household. You are God's family. That's what God wants you to be like. Secondly, since the church is the church of the living God, we need to show the life and presence of God in our worship. It's not the dead poet's society. It's not a museum with relics and fossils and dinosaurs. It's the church of the living God where God's living presence is known and experienced. And that presence of the living God among his people distinguishes the church from every other human assembly. Without that presence of the living God, the church is nothing more than a social club. Nothing more than a sanctified coffee shop where people meet to chat and be friendly to one another. The great covenantal promise of the Bible, God says, I will live with them and walk with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And in the New Testament, Paul says that in Christ we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What marks the Christian congregation off from every other group and every other gathering is this sense of the presence of God. When people gather here in this meeting house, they should sense something that they don't experience anywhere else. They should know that God is here and that he is a living God. That's what Paul says the Corinthians should aim for in their worship. He says when the unbeliever enters Christian worship, the secrets of his heart will be made bare. He'll fall down and worship and exclaim, God is really among you. Now we know that God can reveal himself to people at any place and at any time. But in his providence, God has said, That when his people come together, gathering in worship, lifting their hearts to him in praise, listening to his word, there he is present and there he will speak and there he will make himself known. And there is nothing more attractive, nothing more wonderful than that sense of God being among us. These days I get to go to quite a number of churches to listen to a lot of young preachers preaching have to say, in some places the worship service can be incredibly dull. There's often little sense of the presence of the living God. And you need to realize what a great tradition and heritage you have here in this congregation. So many people pray for the services of worship here. They ask God to bless this congregation with his living presence when it gathers together. And my experience has been that God answers those prayers. That sense of the holy presence of the living God is central to the identity and the mission of the church. So as you embark on this great project of renewing and renovating the meeting house, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord so that this place may be the place where God's presence is experienced in a wonderful and new way. Pray for your musicians and singers 
so that as they work hard in their preparation for worship, they'll know God helping them and enabling them. They'll have a great sense of God's presence in their practices and as they lead in worship. Pray for your minister so that he may know God's power and anointing as he prepares in the study and as he puts together sermons week by week. There the Lord will bless him. And then as he delivers those sermons from this pulpit, pray for the reading of the scriptures that people may hear God's word clearly and plainly. Pray for the preparation of the prayers so that the hearts of all who share in worship may be lifted up to the Lord. In every part of your worship, May you know that God is real. That this is the church, not of a dead God, or an inept God, or a powerless or a weak God, but that this is the church of the living God. You remember that wonderful scene we read in 2 Chronicles 7. Solomon dedicates the temple, and after he had prayed, fire came down from heaven. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the people knelt with their faces to the ground and worshipped and gave thanks and said, He is good. His love endures forever. This congregation is part of the church of the living God. And as this meeting house has echoed to the praises of the Lord in time past, as the word has been preached with clarity and passion, so may it be in days to come. Don't settle for anything less. Don't be half-hearted or lukewarm in your worship. Don't give the impression that what you do here in worship is unimportant or is trivial or is optional. Realize that as you gather for worship, you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The church is the family of God, so be a healthy, loving family. The church is the church of the living God, so let the life and presence of God be manifest in your worship. Here's my final thought. Since the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, we need to lift the truth of Jesus Christ high so that all can see and all can understand it. At first sight, it seems a bit odd for Paul to say that the church is what holds up or protects the truth. We're more familiar with Ephesians 2.20, where Paul says that the truth is the foundation of the church, And we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And when Paul taught that the truth is the foundation of the church, he was referring to the church's life and health. The church rests on the truth. The church depends on the truth. The church can't exist without the truth. But when he taught that the church is the foundation and the pillar of the truth, then he was referring to the church's mission. The church is called to hold the truth fast to make it known, and to lift it high. Remember, these words are written to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. A number of years ago, some of us visited Ephesus. We saw the ruins of the great temple of Diana. In its day, it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world, a hundred ionic columns over 18 meters high, which lifted and held up this massive, shining marble roof. 
a majestic, a marvelous construction. So the folks in Ephesus would know what Paul's talking about. The church is the pillar of the truth. It lifts the truth high so that that truth is seen and heard by the world. And secondly, the foundations of the church hold the truth firm so that it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. To hold the truth firm is the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. And the church is called to both those ministries, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And what is that truth that the church church must guard? What is that truth that the church must proclaim? Well, it's all centered on Jesus Christ. And Paul bears witness to that by quoting from a very early hymn or a very early creed of the church. Great is the mystery of godliness. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, and was taken up into glory. These Ephesian crowds would stand for hours chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! But Paul has another chant for the Christian church in Ephesus. Great is the mystery of godliness. And in six short affirmations, three couplets, Paul tells us about Jesus. In each couplet, there's a deliberate antithesis. Flesh and spirit, angels and nations, world and glory. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit. Reference to the human and divine aspects of Jesus' ministry on earth was seen by angels, was preached among the nations. The ministry of Christ extended beyond Palestine to all the inhabitants of heaven and earth, to angels as well as humans, to the nations as well as to the Jews, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. Heaven and earth did more than see or hear about Jesus. They joined in giving him recognition and worship and acclaim. And it's this mystery of godliness centered on Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord, the truth of which the church is the foundation, all about this historic yet cosmic Christ. And in all its mission, in all its witness, the church exalts and worships and acclaims Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior. That's your mission. Don't let it slip. It's an increasingly unpopular and unacceptable message in our modern world to stand for Christ. To affirm Christian values is not only unacceptable to many, it's viewed as being dangerous and repressive. It needs to be silenced. And yet it's part of the essential identity of the church. Lose this message and the church fails. And no church ought to survive. And no church can survive where that message is diluted or sidelined or played down. Friends, for some of us, there is nothing more important in our lives than being part of Christ's church. And seeing that church not just survive, but advance and grow. And there's nothing more significant for some of you, whatever stage you're at in life, than in seeing the church of Christ in this place grow and develop. In some ways, we look as ordinary and unremarkable people. And we are. 
But there's a wonderful spiritual reality that defines ordinary and unremarkable people like you and me. We're the family of God. We're the gathered people of the living God. We're the pillar and the protector of the truth, manifesting to the powers of this world the great wisdom and grace of God. So, as you begin the renovation, remember that the reform and the renewal and survival of our churches really rests on these great spiritual truths. This is our calling, our identity, not just a building, but a growth and development of the people of God. Remember who you are. You are God's household. You are the church of the living God. You are the pillar and the foundation of the truth.